Welcome to Climate Now. I'm Katherine Gorman. And I'm James Lawler. And today we are going to predict the future. We're going to project the future. Yes, and we are not going alone. No, no, that would be that would be too dangerous. And in fact, we are going with someone who projects the future for a living. Our guest today on the podcast is Dr. Sergei Paltsev, Deputy Director of the MIT Joint Program on the Science and Policy of Global Change. He's also a senior research scientist at the MIT Energy Initiative and the MIT Center for Energy and Environmental Policy Research. And he's a director of the MIT Energy at Scale Center. We started our conversation by asking him the first question that we ask all of our guests. How did you get where you are? Uh, well, as everything is in this life uh, by pure coincidence. So my first training in physics and math I finished the Department of Radio Physics and Electronics. I was hoping that uh, I will build computers. I'm a computer designer for the rest of my life. Certain things, certain geopolitical things happened. Uh, Soviet Union stopped uh, being Soviet Union. I started to see, well, how can I earn money to support myself and my family? That's how I ended up in the first place in the United States. And then uh, I switched to what people call the dark side. So I switched from physics and math to economics. I enjoyed a lot. And uh, I got my PhD in economics from University of Colorado at Boulder. And from Boulder, I came straight to MIT because I knew how to build very complicated economic models. And at that point, MIT was in need to build such a model to project the economy and energy for a long, long time. So my skills were very useful for that task. So I joined MIT in 2002 and still here. Fantastic. I, and, you know, sometimes I have to think that the uh, the dark side thing comes from a place of jealousy from the, the mathematicians and the physicists of the world. So tell me, tell me about your early work at MIT. What were you developing when you were developing these, these really complex forecasting models? Yeah. So my first task when I came to MIT, we actually were analyzing one of the first bills to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in the United States. And it's almost unbelievable, but two main proponents of that bill who introduced that were John McCain and John Lieberman. At at this point, well, it's almost unheard of that well, both sides would work on this issue. Unfortunately, since then, we became much more polarized on this issue. Uh, but that was my first task when I came to MIT to analyze McCain-Lieberman bill. I understand your father was a poet, which is really an, an amazing lens to have on this. Do you find that your exposure to an artistic lens, an artistic way of thinking, informs the way that you approach scientific conversation or or collaboration at large with people outside of your field? I know so many people are engaging in the climate change conversation and especially around modeling these days. Well, I have to admit you caught me off guard. You are the first person who asked me a question about my father being a poet. I have to tell you the truth that poetry is the way how to express yourself in a very, very short short form, you have to be concise and you have to find those words which are really going to resonate. I hope we as scientists are trying to connect to uh, people to communicate the urgency 
and communicate the, all the issues which are related to climate change, to environmental justice, to income inequality. I feel like, unfortunately, I'm not doing as great job as my father. So my father was a very, very good poet, and I really enjoyed how he can find the proper word to resonate with his audience. I wish I have that skill. I, As you have mentioned, I have written many, many papers. So you see, I need many, many more words than he does in order to communicate what I, I'm trying to tell the world. So you and your colleagues, uh, Professor, build and run models that are meant to tell us something about the future. So I'm wondering if you can explain to us a little bit about the science of prediction. In particular, this idea and this question of how confident we can be in scientific prediction, or should we be in scientific prediction? This is another very good question. And I'm going to call you on the use of your word prediction. We deliberately put in the name of our model the word projection. In our world, there is a big difference between prediction and projection. We do not pretend that we can predict the future. Nobody can. You can trace certain tendencies. You can trace how much inertia is built in the system. You can try to put some understanding how technologies may evolve. On the human side, obviously, it's much more difficult because it's very difficult to predict how humans are going to react. And that's the hardest part uh, in these models. On the physical part of the climate modeling, things are a little bit more manageable because, well, we know the physics, right? We know how atmospheric chemistry works. We know ocean mixing. There are certain processes which we can put into the model at a very, very fine scale to understand how things are evolving. Even there, probably you're familiar with the concept of the climate sensitivity, which is a very crucial parameter in climate science field. In other words, if you are increasing carbon dioxide, if you're increasing greenhouse gases, by how much temperature is going to grow? The best climate scientists are issuing the reports periodically, uh, which are called assessment reports. So Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change, IPCC, issuing these assessment reports. And if you're going to take a look at the latest report, which are more than 25 years apart, we are not learning that much about reducing the uncertainty about the climate sensitivity. All these processes are so long-term, so the climate change, in order to, to detect the signal of the climate change, you really need a lot of observations. And that's a very challenging task. So coming back to your question, our colleagues uh, on the science side are also trying to do what is called the uncertainty analysis. In other words, to quantify, to quantify where is our confidence and to quantify how much do we know and what are the bounds of our knowledge. So coming back to your original question, we are not making predictions. And if somebody is going to tell you that he's making the predictions, well, don't trust them, including me if I'm going to tell you that. But we are making projections of different scenarios. And what is the value of that? We can tell if the world is going to go this path, this is the outcome. If the world is going to go into different trajectory, 
Well, that will be the outcome, and you need to take to, into consideration in your decisions the risk which is associated uh, in being in these two different pathways. In our program at MIT, we have developed what is called greenhouse gamble wheels. The whole point of developing those greenhouse gamble wheels is try to communicate that notion of uncertainty. So let me try to visualize what is that. Uh, where you have like a roulette wheel uh, and you're turning the roulette wheel. And if you land on a certain section of the roulette wheel, so I think in the US it's called wheel of fortune, you can see that if the area on a roulette wheel is bigger, the probability of landing for that price is much bigger. And so that's exactly how we are communicating the likelihood of outcomes to policymakers in terms of the what kind of projections in terms of the temperature or what kind of projections in terms of the cost of reaching targets you may have. Because they immediately see, oh, the area is bigger. So means that the likelihood of those outcomes is very different. And then what we do, we have our scenario and we show, well, this is where the world is going in terms of the temperature. And then we have another wheel where we show this is where the world is going to be with the policy. And we show how much gain you are going to get from that. And again, the point is, we don't know the precise answer, but we can quantify the probability, the likelihood of certain outcomes. And when you start speaking about probability distribution functions or ranges, almost immediately you are going to lose the general public. But this visualization, actually very important, and that helps to communicate the urgency and what is the impact of the actions. It's very important to realize that, one, you're not fooling the world with the false precision because people are smart. They will immediately realize that, well, you cannot predict that. You don't know that. But if you're making projections about scenarios and comparing the outcomes, the impacts in these scenarios, this is where the real value of what we are trying to do and what we are trying to communicate to both industry leaders, the decision makers, and the general public. It feels sort of like you could call it the wheel of misfortune. And I, you, you mentioned the scenarios, and I'd love to dig into one that you've written about and worked on. Um, can, we, can you tell me about the growing pressure scenario? So the growing pressure scenario... We have developed that exactly with that premise to try to communicate general public and industry leaders who are not experts in this, what it would take to really change our business as usual. Why we are advocating that we need to stop looking at the business as usual and start looking at alternative scenarios where the world is developing. At the same time, growing pressure scenarios is the way of showing the world that we need to do much more. What we have there is not reaching the goals of the Paris Agreement. As you very well aware, the goals which are written in the Paris Agreement to stabilize the temperature well below two degree. In our growing pressure scenarios, we are stabilizing, but at about three degree increase above pre-industrial. So the first pressure is, well, the earth is telling us well, we need to do something differently. Otherwise, we will be in trouble. The second pressure is 
from you and me and others who deeply care about this issue. And we as citizens are putting pressure to policymakers, to companies, to shareholders, to change the behavior. And you can see that these big companies are reacting to that because that pressure is getting more and more and more aggressive and more and more and more pushing the companies to change their behavior. So that pressure is growing. Again, by the nature, we are working with a lot of energy companies because we truly believe you have to work with those companies. So sometimes you can hear the story, well, we just need to blame them and kind of put some labels uh, on these companies. But I don't think that's productive. The productive way is to make sure that they realize there is an issue and they change the attitude, they change their business model. So for example, we are working a lot with Shell Company and they are the leading company which realizes the need to go to net zero emissions. And so they feel growing pressure, both from their own realization that you cannot continue to do that, but also from the financial community, which is telling them, oh, look, you are going to have problem with raising capital because our shareholders asking us that you need to change your behavior. All those pressures are going to really move us towards the way of economy, which is no longer reliant on the fossil fuels. And another pressure, well, I'm from Institute of Technology. So it means that, well, we have a lot of very, very smart engineers who are trying to think what will be the new technology. And previously, well, what they were trying to do is to create something, well, which is going to work and also which is going to be economic and you can employ that uh, in certain industries, certain sectors, but they didn't care that much about that that device has to also be non-emitting. And so that's another constraint which they suddenly now face in whatever they do, they need to show that emissions are going to be eliminated. You're not going to create any bad environmental impacts from your discoveries, from your devices, from what you are inventing. It's a lot of engineering skills now put into solving this issue, not just how to produce things, but how to produce things without any environmental impact. Professor, I'd love to go to a couple of specific moments from the growing pressure scenario narrative that are described in this report and, and ask you to explain them a little bit. One of the points that's made in the report relates to the fact that the gradual reduction in emissions that we're seeing from some of the more developed countries, including the United States, has been due to the replacement of coal by natural gas due to the price of natural gas. Even in a scenario with widespread renewable use, natural gas will likely play a critical role you know, for a long time in stabilizing the electricity grid. What do you see as the process by which we will wean ourselves away from natural gas eventually? Indeed, natural gas is a very important fuel, and it's very important to make sure that we are providing stable energy 24 hours, uh, seven days a week to everywhere where that energy is needed. 
as you have correctly mentioned, we have a role for natural gas in the growing pressure scenario for quite a while. I can create a lot of scenarios where that's not the case. I can create a lot of scenarios where we are hitting the net zero target by 2050 or even earlier than that. But the issue is how realistic are those scenarios? What are you learning from these type of the scenarios where you are over-optimistic in comparison to the real world? Because I don't think we can expect that a place like Nigeria will stop producing their natural gas in 10 years or even 15 years, or a place like Russia will stop produce natural gas in 10 years or 15 years. That's not going to happen. Because again, the story in Europe, in the United States, may be very different from the stories in other parts of the world. And that's exactly the premise behind our growing pressure scenario, that even those places are going to have pressure. Even fossil producers, they realize that, well, at some point, they have to change their behavior because the world is changing. Let's say it's a scenario where you know, the US and Europe are starting to use new technologies. They're going away from natural gas. It's very clear that this is where the money is, is in, let's say, battery storage to solve the inter- intermittency problem of the grid, to support the grid. And this is a big business. Wouldn't it be true that utility providers and, and bigger companies in Russia and in other places would see that and would say, wow, th- there's a lot of money in this transformation we should do that too. Would that not be an accelerant in the adoption curve? How does that type of logic work into the modeling? What you're describing is exactly right. The issue is, well, there is this chicken and egg problem, right? In order to make sure that storage is economic, you need to provide a lot of support. You need to put a lot of policies to bring them to be economic. Well, obviously, if there is a technological solution, let's kind of not single out just the storage. Well, at MIT, we have a big project on fusion. And, well, we are promising that in five years, well, we will be close to solving that. And maybe in 10 years, uh, we will provide the world with the new wonderful technology fusion. Well, problem solved. Yes. So we go that direction. Again, coming back to your premise that in other countries, well, they will see that that's economic. It's economic maybe because of certain policies. And if in your country you don't really have the policy, you don't really require renewables, fossil fuels are very, very hard to beat because they are so efficient. And if you're not putting the price on carbon, it's very, very difficult to beat that energy uh, in terms of the cost. So in our growing pressure scenarios, we actually project that cost of renewables is still going to continue to fall down dramatically. But even with all these decreases in the solar and wind and storage, the share of the energy which needs to be replaced is so huge. The scale is so huge that it really would take time. And so that's why we see the need for these technologies in different parts of the world for quite a prolonged time. Currently, with all uh, the increases in the renewables, they uh, only provide 10% of the uh, power generation needs. In terms of the electric car, so that's another popular topic right now, 
we will electrify uh, the private transportation. To give you the scale, the number of the internal combustion vehicles in the world on the roads right now is about 1 billion cars. How many electric cars do you think we currently have on the roads? I'm not sure. So the right answer is about 10 million. So just to make sure everybody heard that, that's 10 million electric cars in a global fleet of more than a billion cars. Obviously, there's a major scaling up challenge. One billion. So you can imagine, even with very, very quick adoption of the electric vehicles, we are not going to do that in five years or not even in 10 years. And because, again, the situation in different countries is very, very different. Again, coming back to your question, well, the car makers will see that, well, that's a tendency. And indeed, I think that's exactly what is going to change uh, adoption because more and more companies will follow the announcement of, let's say, GM, where they said that, well, they're not going to produce internal combustion vehicles by a certain date. MIT's Dr. Sergei Paltiev, whose paper on the growing pressure scenario models a world where the term business as usual no longer describes the status quo. The paper is important reading really for any policymaker, economist, or climate scientist thinking about what our future will look like. And that is it for this episode of the podcast. You can head over to climatenow.com to check out our other interviews, watch our videos, and sign up for our newsletter. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet at us at WeAreClimateNow.